0: are complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ.
1: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And as always, a huge week in technology. The new FTC commissioner wants to break up big tech. I'm going to talk about what her plans are. Uh, There's another non-fungible token for sale, and it looks like it's going to be a big sale price. Tim Berners-Lee is auctioning off an NFT of his original source code that he used for making the World Wide Web. Uh, It's it's an interesting. (laughs) Interesting concept, these non-fungible tokens. Oh, big news for Colonial Pipeline. Ransomware payments may be tax deductible.
0: What? But th- I think they got a lot of the money back.
1: Yeah, they got they got back two point two million. But the but the money they didn't get back, they got back two-thirds of it. But the uh-huh. money they didn't get back is tax deductible. So people uh-huh. are questioning whether the government should allow ransomware payments to be tax-deductible because we really don't want people to make those payments. Interesting. And uh, ransomware has hit another, uh, another large company, a uh, meat processing company, and it's, it shut down plants uh, worldwide. Now, this week, I'm going to try to get to the evil twin Wi-Fi networks. I talked about them last week, but uh, somehow just ran out of time. And this week, we're going to talk about uh, Paul Boucher, Buhite, Paul Buhite. He is the uh, creator of Gmail, Paul Buhite. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Michael in St. Louis. Dear Tech Talk, I use Venmo to transfer funds to my friends. Now, I'd like to keep some of these transactions private. Unfortunately, Venmo shows them all. Is there any way I can change my settings to keep the transactions hidden? Michael in St. Louis. Well, Michael, actually, these money transfer apps are pretty convenient. I use actually four of them, depending on, because I got different people. They all like different uh, reps. I use PayPal, you, Venmo, Zelle, uh-huh. Cash App. Do you use them on really your burner phone? To, to, to transfer money. Do you use those very much, Jim? I,
0: I don't use them at all, but do you use your, yours on your burner phone so you can, uh, you know, limit the knowledge of your transactions?
1: No, I don't. Uh, I'm not. I haven't reached that point yet. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't reached. But uh, I you, don't think any of these are really that that private. To tell you the see, truth, I would have now, to
0: have money in order to use a money transfer system. So yeah, though, well,
1: that is very true. Now, the the thing is, Venmo is the least private of all. It's owned by PayPal. PayPal bought it. Now, Venmo was set up to be a social networking payment app. So all of your transactions are listed. So all, all your friends, if you have any friends on um, uh, Facebook or any, uh, or any contacts in your, in your contact list, you'll automatically see all their transactions. I mean, it's really interesting. I, when I go on to Venmo, I've got a, a nephew, and, and he's, he, he's a friend on on my contact list. Every time he makes payments, I see it. I've got people that used to work at Stratford that are on my contact list. I see all their payments. You know, buying gifts, doing this. I mean, there is no <laughs> privacy on Venmo. Wow. I, I, that's one thing I don't like about it. But here's the good news, Michael. In June of 2021, Venmo changed the privacy settings. And now you can hide your friends list. And that is a really big news. Because yeah. then you can you can pay people and everybody else doesn't know what you're up to. Well, that's good. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> Venmo is really easy, easy to use. I mean, I... Somehow, people get hooked on one or the other, and that's why I ended up with so many, trying to satisfy all my friends and their cash transfer requirements. So what you want to do, you open up your Venmo app, head to the home screen, tap on the menu icon in the upper right-hand corner, then you just tap Settings, and then on the Friends List screen, you choose Private. And make sure there's a, a, a blue check mark beside the Private option. And then um, you can decide whether you also want to appear on your friends lists. Now, by default, this is green, and if you don't want to uh, appear on your friends list, you want to toggle it off because you might block it. People looking at yours thing, you're, at your at your they might it might not come from your. Um, from your application, if, if you're not sharing your friends' list, but if you don't block who you're having the transaction to, your name's going to show up on theirs. So then you want to also block it so that it won't appear on your on the other person's um, transaction list, and then you'll be completely hidden. I mean, I think there were a lot of people complaining about this because they they did want privacy, but you know, but it is a combination of payment transfer and social media. And uh, and mostly younger, as you would expect, mostly younger people use Venmo. All the old fogies use PayPal. And so PayPal wanted to attract the younger demographics, so they bought Venmo. You yeah, got an email?
0: I do use PayPal every so often when I get something on eBay, which is like once a year.
1: That's right. Old fogey. What did I say? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Good thing you're like in a, in
0: a, another. Actually, state. Jim, I, yes. I'm an
1: old fogey myself too. I've got PayPal. Yeah, but but I but I had one. Uh, I, I had one guy doing some work for me at the house, and he only took Cash App. Then I took somebody else; they would only take Venmo. Then mm-hmm. somebody else would only take PayPal, and. Uh, Zelle is pretty convenient. It's just built into your, you know, to your to your banking. Like I've got Bank of America and Zelle is just built into their app. So you don't have to download a separate Zelle transfer app. It's it's pretty convenient to send money that way, but people are using this more and more and more yeah. as we go to a sort of a cashless society.
0: Well, I know someone who's been <laughs> teaching music uh virtually during the pandemic and that's how she gets
1: paid is by Venmo. Yeah. That's And now she can hide her French list so people can't see who she's getting money from. I have to tell her that. Yeah. So we got an email from Jim in Arlington. Dear Doc and Jim, a friend of me told me that hiding my Wi-Fi network name on uh, 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 his—hiding the uh, Wi-Fi network name on his router would prevent neighbors from finding and connecting to the Internet. Now, he apparently is not using a password, (laughs) So he doesn't want anybody to find his network and then piggyback on top of his deal. Uh-huh. I'd like to follow his advice, but I'm, but I'm not sure once I hide the name how I can even connect to my Wi-Fi router. Well, actually, uh, Jim, it, you know, it's really easy to do that. The, the Wi-Fi router it broadcasts the, the, the network name. They call it SSID is the name of it. They broadcast the SSID. And you can click on the broadcast name and you can connect to it. But you can actually tell your router not to broadcast the name. So then if somebody, you know, uh, you know, searches for a network, they won't see your your network. Now, that means, though, that every time you log on to your network, or, well, you're apparently not logging in. Anytime you want to connect to your network, you're going to have to actually put in the name of your Wi-Fi network. You have to remember what that is. You just put it in and, and you'll connect straight to it. It's not really that. That really—that's not really that hard to do. On the other hand, this is not very secure, Jim. I mean, if anybody knows anything, they can just have a uh, a network sniffer out there, and they can they can sniff your uh, sniff your Wi-Fi um, uh, network in a in a snap. It's going to be very easy for it to pick up. So so it's only for uh, this will only block the I would call the stupid hackers from getting into your network. Anybody who's serious hacking, it wouldn't stop them at all. Now. I mean, honestly, I think that you should uh, use a password and not use this idea that you want to uh, you know, hide by hiding the password and then think that's going to work because that's not very effective. So you just want to log into your Wi-Fi router, and you want to n- enable the uh, strongest encryption that they have, whatever your router supports, and then you want to change your Wi-Fi password to something that's uh, – easy to remember, but difficult to hack, you know, something long and something just a little bit complicated. And now if you, if you want to see whether people are, you know, you know, trying to piggyback on your network, you you can occasionally run this thing app, F-I-N-G. I've got a, I use that thing app a lot, F-I-N-G, and you can uh, see if there are any strange connections to your Wi-Fi network. By the way, I use that thing app. You know, there's this problem when, like, if you get an Airbnb, there may be some hidden webcams around. So I, when I get there, I log onto their Wi-Fi network and use the thing app and it will tell me what sort of devices are logged into the network. And you can actually do a little investigation with that thing app. I I love that thing app, F-I-N-G. So uh, don't. Don't have an open Wi-Fi network. It's just a bad idea, Jim. We got an email from Joey in Ashburn. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an older laptop with Windows that had Windows on, it and then the, the hard drive died. And I bought a new Windows 10 machine, but I'd like to take that old laptop, put in a new drive, and then install the Chrome operating system. Uh, is, that, uh, is that possible? If, if I'm pretty tech savvy, so I can follow instructions pretty well. Joey in Ashburn. Well, Joey, that's a great question. Now, it depends on your laptop's brand and model. Um, the Chrome operating system will work on most recent laptops, but not on all of them, as some hardware devices currently don't have uh, uh, device drivers that support Chrome operating system. But I'd try it. Now, if it doesn't work, you can you can always install Linux. And that's got a huge support of uh, device drivers. Now, I'd recommend you replace the hard drive in your laptop with a solid-state hard drive. Uh, You don't have to have really a large one because the Chrome operating system stores all the files in the cloud, so you don't really need uh, need a a large hard drive. You know, 32 gigabytes is going to be enough. It doesn't take a big drive like you do if you've got a a Windows machine where you store all your files locally. Then there is a version of the Chrome operating system called Cloud Ready. Cloud Ready. Cloud Ready it's 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 published by Neverware so you can go to neverware.com neverware.com and you can download Cloud Ready now there's a free version and a paid version <clears throat> so when you download it <clears throat> and you're installing it you scroll down and there's an orange button that says get the get the free version i mean they put that down at the bottom because they'd rather have you get the paid version, but just get the free version. And then you'll have instructions on how to put the installer on a USB flash drive. So you'll copy the, the whole operating system with the installer on the USB flash drive. And then you simply um, simply boot up on that flash drive with the, uh, you, you know, the, the, you simply put that flash drive in and you click on the installer. You don't boot up because it's an operating system. Put in the USB drive, and then you click on the installer and you'll install the Chrome OS and you will you should have a, a Chromebook up and running pretty quickly. We got an email from Azra in Fredericksburg. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got a USB flash drive with several hundred photos on it that I scanned during a recent visit to my grandmother's house. These are precious pictures and I don't want to lose them. Um, now, I'm going to take this thumb drive and lock it in a safe now. To, to make certain I don't lose these pictures, how long will that thumb drive last? I'm, you know, I don't want to. I'm going to make sure that I don't lose them. I'm going to put them in a fireproof safe. Actually, well, uh, Azra, you know, first of all, you're. I think it's a whole, barely a bad strategy of what you're up to. But uh, most flash <laughs> drives, uh, they, they, the manufacturers say they last 10 years, but there are a number of variables that can shorten their life, particularly if you're using it and pull it out improperly or. Have a lot of writes and rewrites on it, so if it's a, if it's a used hard drive, it may it's not going to probably last 10 years. But if these pictures are really important to you, you really need more than one copy. So uh, I would I would certainly do you certainly could, should put it on two USB thumb drives or three have multiple thumb drives if if, if that's your storage method of choice. And, uh now one problem is if you truly really want to keep these pictures going I and mean, what happens if your house catches on fire so or something like that? So you may want to send a, a thumb drive of these pictures to uh, some of your uh, relatives so they have copies. The more copies you have at the more locations uh, the the safer it will be. And so that way you'd definitely be able to do that. Now what I do, is I've got the pictures on my laptop. I've got pictures on a USB hard drive, which I feel is more secure than a than a thumb drive. And then I back up the pictures to Carbonite, and I back up the pictures to uh, to to the Microsoft OneDrive. And um, and so actually, I, I back them up on Google. I, I back them up on three different cloud services. And uh, so I'm pretty much covered here. I got multiple backups on it. And so. If, if you don't want to send out these USB drives to your relatives, I'd, I would certainly back it up to the cloud. And then the nice thing is you could share the link to that cloud backup with your relatives and they could look at the photos remotely. That might be not a bad idea. Uh, you also have the option of storing them on a DVD if you want to go through all that trouble. You've you got many options, but you're having them on only one thumb drive is the worst option of all. <laughs> we got an email from Eric in Fairfax, Dear Tech Talk. I'm in the process of opening my own third party remote customer uh, service business. It's absolutely critical that I have my uh, internet connection up at all times uh, with nearly 0% downtime. Now I've got Xfinity uh, as my main internet connection. I'm also getting a uh, a Verizon uh, internet connection as a backup. Now the question I have is, is there a way that I can hook two internet connections to the same router? Or am I going to just have to, you know, if, if like if Xfinity goes down, I'm going to am I going to have to pull the cable out from the Xfinity connection and then plug in the Verizon connection and have to do it manually, which I'd prefer not to do. What 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 do you think my best options are? Well, um, actually, it's not a bad idea to have two Internet connections if you've got to have good re- reliability. I kind of agree with that. But what you have to get is a dual WAN router, a dual wide area network router, W-A-N, wide area network router, a dual WAN router, uh, and then uh, you, and you can configure that router in two ways. You can have it set up in the failover mode where you basically select Xfinity as your primary internet connection, and if that fails, it just fails over, just transfers automatically over to the Verizon connection. That would be the failover mode, but a better option for you would be load balancing because that way you're using the uh, the bandwidth of both the Verizon and Xfinity together. You put them together and you balance the load, and basically you're you're connecting, you're using the bandwidth from both internet connections. Now that that's you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting a higher upload download speed plus. If if one of them goes out, the other one just keeps on functioning. It, it there, there's no you don't have to have a failover. It just it just keeps on functioning. So get a a, a dual WAN router and use the lo, the load balancing mode. Now if you want to get a a, a pretty good router is the Synology Synology S Y N O L O G Y Synology RT twenty six hundred AC. Uh, That's a great uh, dual WAN router. It's had really good reviews. It's $199 on Amazon. Now, if you really want to have no single point of failure, you're going to want to get two routers. Because what happens if the router fails and you don't have a replacement router? So you might want to have a backup router. And then in case the router fails, you can just do a quick swap of your backup router. But well, that was really a good a good email. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk@stratford.edu at and we'll go back to you as soon as we can.
0: It is Saturday morning, and you are listening to Tech Talk on Federal News Network. Heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, Loudoun County, 104.5 FM, and now southwest of D.C. on 1077 FM HD 2. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University and how you can attend by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. I.T. trends, software, the Internet, and I.T. careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
1: Buchheit, well B-U-C-H-H-E-I-T. He's a computer programmer and angel investor who is best known as creator of Gmail. Paul Buchheit was born November seventh, 1977 in Webster, New York. Now, from a young age, he had affinity to anything related to computers. He's one of the brightest students in his uh, class. He came up with many innovative ideas to tackle issues related to computer glitches. He loved tinkering with computers from the very earliest age. He went to Case Western uh, Un- Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, where he received a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science. Now, while he was there, he also rode in. He he, he also was on the crew. He he was a rower on the crew team there, where they raced the boats and. Uh, yeah, certainly he certainly did enjoy that now actually he started working on email software back in 1966 while he was still in project it was it was kind of a side project now but they uh, and and oddly enough now this seems amazing he was calling it Gmail back then this is he didn't even work at Google huh. uh, I, 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 that is just really bizarre that 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 he was doing that now it was just it was just a random project. It wasn't necessarily a a predecessor predecessor of Gmail, code-wise, but he was tinkering with it, and and he'd been un, And the reason he started working on it, he was just unhappy with email. See, the back then, 1996, this was before Hotmail, and we didn't have any web interfaced Gmail accounts. So whenever he'd have to check his email, he'd have to go back to the dorm room, you know, boot up his computer yeah. and check his email. He could not check his email with his with his mobile phone. He couldn't check his email, you know, at the library, and he says there's got to be a better way. Yeah. So yeah. so then he started he started working on Gmail uh, on a email system that that had a web web interface. After he graduated from uh, um, uh, from college, and after ended, from college getting his uh, master's degree from Case Western. He got a short uh, job. He got a job at Intel. He just stayed there for a short time, and then he um, uh, decided to move to Google. He he was actually Google's twenty third employee. I mean, he got in on the ground floor there at Google. That's a low license
0: his, plate number.
1: Yeah, he got a twenty third employee. Now, you know, he got some pretty good stock stock options. He made good money out of that deal. I'm mm-hmm. quite certain. Now, at Google he started working on the Gmail project around 2001. Uh, and it, was, it had very innovative methods on how, they, uh, on how you could search the email, how it stored the email, and, um, and so he, he, he basically fixed a lot of the problems that were wrong with conventional email. Now, he had been working in the Google Groups section, where they were making software for Google Groups. And when, after the first generation of Google Groups had mostly wrapped up, they, they came to him and they said, hey, uh, Paul, we'd like you to work on some kind of email system or personalization system for email. See, they, And so he said, wow, this is great. And so he was excited to do that because he could continue the project that he had started in college. So he started out using some of the core code that was in the Google Groups uh, because he was familiar with it. So he, he pieced it together and he had the first version of Gmail put together in one day using the Google Group software using the Google Groups code now he released it to some of the googlers around and they said yeah it's pretty useful so then he he started working on it some more started started progressing some more now but this was a very controversial project you see back in the beginning everybody said you know google is a search company what in the world are we working on email for that's not search so it's kind of controversial, and people thought he was a little bit wacky for even pursuing it. But uh, they thought this was strange. But and he did get pushback from some quarters within Google. But he kept moving on, and he was also encouraged by others. So he kept he kept developing it, and uh, but they, it wasn't a large group. Paul managed to convince a couple of other Googlers to work with him. That's what they call. Him. People that work at Google, Googlers, they, they got a couple of other Googlers to work with him, and, uh, and they were working on it, uh, on it quite, uh, quite intently to try to get this thing done. Now, uh, one thing that was innovative: two, uh, when you'd get a Gmail account, you'd get one gigabyte of storage. I mean, that was unheard of in the day. Yeah. Back, back you know, back then with an email account, you'd get like two to four megabytes, hardly anything. And they were giving back one gigabyte of data, unheard of. Now, the other thing that was really interesting about Gmail is that the way they grouped it. The old email systems, if you were carrying on a conversation with somebody, all of their responses would just be distributed in your email all over the place, and they would be separated by date. So you might have emails from someone on the same conversation that could be spread over weeks, And it was hard to keep them all together. So people would start creating a subdirectory, say, of emails from John. And they would, every time they get an email from John as part of the conversation, they put it in that subdirectory. And so they were constantly creating subdirectories to try to organize their email so they could keep the conversations together. So he got the idea. He says, well, why don't we just link all the conversations within Gmail itself? I mean, that was a really innovative idea. So now when you have a conversation with somebody and they respond to you, you respond back to them. All of those conversations are linked together in the same, looks like a threaded discussion actually. So he made email conversations look like threaded discussion conversations. That was the big breakthrough. That's what I loved about Gmail. Now he, uh, and so he he launched this thing, and it was a huge success. Now there 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 are, t- today there are 1.8 billion people using Gmail, mm. if you can imagine. Now, but but at Google you just kind of work on different projects like you're interested in. So uh, and and if there'd be something that catches eye, oh, he'd work on it. That's kind of the innovation mentality there at Google, and uh, and. Adsense kind of something targeted ads caught his caught his attention he 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 actually was kind of interested in working on targeted ads. This is where uh, and this is what people hate where where Google they sort of know what's in your emails, yeah, they sort of scan it and then they give you ads that are related to what's in your email. It's called you know that's called targeted ads. And they have a program called AdSense. Well, they had, at Google they talked about it for quite some time, but they thought it'd be really be complicated. They thought it probably wouldn't work. There's kind of a lot of pushback. And he was sort of interested in it. It's called con- content targeting systems. That's what they that's that's their bud's word for it. So um, so so what he did one one Friday night, he says, you know, this is kind of interesting. Everybody said this is really hard to do. So so he in just one evening, he put together a content targeting system as kind of a side project, threw it together. It took about a day. And lo and behold, the darn thing worked. It worked really well. So, I mean, he wrote just a throwaway prototype just to sort of test the code out. And then all of a sudden people says, well, you know, Paul, this actually may be possible. So then a lot of other people got involved once he showed the proof of concept. And a lot of these other people did the hard work to make a real project. And, and they eventually launched AdSense. Now, AdSense, which delivers content-targeted ads to users, generates for Google millions of dollars a day right now. That's really a lucrative, lucrative project. Now, another thing that he's known for, he got really involved with the company Values. Back in 2000, they decided to have a meeting. They got everybody together and they said, okay, we need a mission statement. So they started writing stuff on the board and Paul said, you know, I don't like all these things like be the, be the best and be, you know, yeah. you know, always have their la- latest, you know, sort so of the cheesy. old buzzword of, of mission statements. So he proposed, don't be evil. <laughs> he said, don't be evil. And the guy up there, they just hated it. They, you know, the moderate, and they kept trying to push it down. And then, Paul and this other guy, Amit Patel, they, they kept pushing it up. They kept saying, no, we got to leave that in there. Don't be evil. It, it sort of encapsulates everything else. And they fought for it, and, and it ended up being uh, on the final list of eight or ten values. Don't be evil. And then what Amit Patel did the next day, he went all over Googleplex out there, their Google headquarters, and he wrote, don't be evil at the top of every whiteboard he could find. <laughs> So now <laughs> when anybody thinks of the values at Google, they all know don't be evil. Now, but unfortunately I think Google has turned a little evil. You're I right. think they've forgotten yeah. about that value actually <laughs> in recent times of uh-huh. all the shenanigans of trying to get, track all your data. So, uh, in 2007, he decided to, uh, to leave, uh, uh to leave, uh, uh, Google and start his own company. So, uh, so Paul Buchheit he 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 left and with with a friend of his at Google and they started Friend Feed. Now Friend Feed it's a real time aggregator that consolidates all the updates from social media. See the problem was if you're like if if you had all these different social media accounts Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and you're always you got to keep up with them. They decided let's get an aggregator so one place you've got them all there and you can update all your social media feeds from one portal that's not a bad idea yeah. and so and so they uh, they started doing that thing and and they and it would aggregate data from social media websites social bookmarking websites from blogs from micro blogs and from any and from a, any uh, uh rss feed and um so you know they were they were getting a good u- user base and now uh facebook didn't like the competition they don't like somebody aggregating them <laughs> they like to aggregate everybody else. Yeah, well, right. Here, FriendFeed was aggregating Facebook, as though they were the top of the heap, and uh, Zuckerberg did not like that. So they bought them. So uh, Facebook bought uh, FriendFeed in a private transaction that is apparently that it was apparently worth millions. We don't know really what it was because it was private. And then, so uh, so Paul uh, Buchheit. Uh, he then started investing in small and small company, in small companies, small startups. He became an angel investor, and but between 2006 and 2008, Buhite had invested about 1.2 million dollars in 32 different startups, and uh, and finally, uh, oh yeah, oh the one I forgot to say, when Facebook bought FriendFeed, they also hired Buhite to, to work for them. Uh, but he didn't last long. Within, within a couple, of, within well, within a, 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 a within a year, he left, and he left to actually become a full-time angel investor. Because by the time he left, he'd already invested in thirty-two small startups. So he decided to become his own angel investor. Now, the reason he decided to go into angel investing, he said it is a ton of work to be to 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 lead a startup. I mean you 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 get up at six o'clock in the morning, you're writing code, you gotta worry about the servers being up. He'd just been through that with friend friend feed and uh and he and he just didn't want to have he didn't want to live the startup life where just takes over your life. Mm -hmm. So he liked investing in other people and having it take over their lives. And he could (laughs) just sort of, you know, guide them and give them advice. That's why he became an angel investor. So uh, he he in 2009, he, he wanted to also give money to causes. He set up a uh, a, um, a crowdsource site called Google Moderator where people could suggest causes, 5013Cs, that, that he could uh, invest his money in to sort of help them out. And he liked to invest in healthcare-related things, uh, mostly at that time. Now, he ended up becoming a partner in Y Combinator, which is... Uh, which is a um, which is a, a a company that invests in startups and mentors them. So he he's he's now very much part of Y Combinator, and and he continues to oversee his own investments. He has about he's had about he's got about 40 startups now that he's investing in, and and the only other group that has more investments in startup than him is Y Combinator, and uh, he's got about 40 startups now. But significantly, out of his 140 startups that he's invested in over his full cycle of angel investing, 60 of them have actually led to a transaction where he's made money. So that is really a high hit rate for, uh, for that in 2011, he got the economist e- economist innovation award for computing and uh, telecommunications. Now, Buhight believes, I mean, he's, he's sort of, he believes that we have the wherewithal because of our technology to provide food, housing, education, and health care for everyone, whether they work or not. I mean, he's he's written this on his blog a lot. And then he says you should only have to work if you want to work. He says, well, like, I don't have to work. I just enjoy working. And we should actually get people out of what he calls wage slavery, where they have to work. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know that I agree with that uh, look at entirely.
0: How look at how that's working out today. Yeah, I, I, have I think, a little bit I think of that that's going because on. he's
1: in the Silicon Valley bubble. Uh-huh. And uh, and so they make so they got so many rich people there. They say, yeah, well, we make enough money. We could do that. Uh, it he's an interesting guy, and he's he's very philosophical. I, I did a lot of reading of his blog. Uh, his net worth is estimated to be about six hundred million dollars now. Not you can go shabby. to paul, paulbuheit.blogspot.com uh, uh, and and his blog. He started his blog in two thousand and seven, and you can read the blog as he goes through his career. It's really an interesting read to see how he has evolved in his thinking. And then you'll see people responding to his blog entries. I, I did really learn quite a bit about him reading his blog. So there you go. Everything that you wanted to know about Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail.
0: Now, we've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, back when Gmail was a new thing, you had to be invited to get a Gmail account. Now, uh, what now— First of that all, how is, did how did you find that, out about Gmail and how did you get your account?
1: well, i I'd, I'd been reading about Gmail and all the features of it, and i and I was just chomping at the bit to get an account. But you had to know someone to get an account. So I went to a blog where a Gmail where Googlers were blogging, and I off this was back, actually, Jim, seventeen years ago during the cicada season, right. <laughs> Right. And and it turned out that the culinary department was having a special on that week and they were producing in the kitchens chocolate covered cicadas, (laughs) Uh, you know, as as like an after dinner snack. Uh huh. Now. uh, So what I did, I went on to this blog post and I said, if anyone would give me a Gmail account, I will send to you. Packed in dry ice, three dozen chocolate-covered cicadas. <laughs> and somebody from Google emailed me. He says, "Yeah, I'll give you an, I'll give you an account." So I got one of the early accounts, How and long- uh, and I could pick my own name. And I I packed up these chocolate-covered cicadas in dry ice and shipped them out to California.
0: <laughs> How long did it take you to get a response from somebody? That they, I, I
1: got, I had it almost the same day. Oh my gosh,
0: that's amazing! And then, and then you and I crossed paths sometime later because we've been together now maybe fifteen years. I think it is fourteen, yeah, or fifteen yeah. years. And so I was I, using, so
1: then once I had an account, I could give an account to people. So right. I gave you an account because I was an account holder.
0: You did, and I had AOL, and and it changed my life. The thing I mean, you liked the storage space, and I think back then I was wasn't even thinking about that. I liked the security features and and the fact that the, the spam set up, and they would just. Filter all that stuff out, you know. Yeah, you, you don't the even spam see filter
1: it. in Google in Google Mail is really good. Yeah, yep. That's that's
0: what I that's what I liked about it. Well, anyway, hope you were paying attention because your chance to maybe win a prize comes up here when we play the pop quiz on Tech Talk. On Federal News Network, heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, Southwest of D.C., 1077 FM HD 2, Loudoun County, you can hear us at 104.5 FM. Go to Stratford.edu to learn more about the programs and how you can attend Stratford University. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
3: Featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard
1: Church Oh yes, thank you, thank you,
3: you know,
0: thank you. I every week, you savor the applause longer and longer. I do.
1: It's my favorite part of the show, Jim, <laughs> I have to tell you. <laughs> my favorite, part, favorite of part of the show. Favorite part of the show. Yes. So early, uh, you know, this is not merely a radio program, Jim, as you know. It's a classroom of the airwaves. And so we have to evaluate whether the class has been listening with the pop quiz. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to fine dining when our dining room is open. And that's coming very soon. And you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about Paul Buhayt. He, of course, is a computer programmer, best known as the creator of Gmail. Now, he started working on an email program while he was in college. What motivated him to start working on email back then?
3: If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from West of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a pile of dead cicadas east of Plandale Shirts, Virginia... It's 877-936-9333. If you're packaging chocolate-covered cicadas to bribe Google officials for your Gmail account in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the international line. It's sanitized Hourly with chocolate-covered cicadas. Masks optional. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard.
1: Well, thank you very much. Yes. Let's talk about the new FTC commissioner. She wants to break up big tech. Now, this this is something that both Democrats and Republicans agree on. This is quite amazing. Now, the Senate just confirmed uh, Lena Kahn uh, as the F- FTC commissioner. Uh, so now she's official. Kahn is only 32. She'll become the youngest commissioner ever confirmed for the agency. Now, her confirmation sing- signals a bipartisan desire to impose more regulations on big tech like Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, and Apple. Now, Con received support from several Republicans, including the Commerce Committee ranking member Roger Wicker, who's a Republican from Mississippi, who participated in her confirmation hearing. Now, Khan has been well known in the antitrust circles for writing Amazon's antitrust paradox for the Yale Law School Review in 2017, while still a student at the university. Now, the paper made the case for using a different framework for evaluating competitive harm than the popular consumer welfare standard. Now, the current standard says that antitrust law violations are determined by harm on computers, for instance, based on prices. If you if you have an antitrust situation and, and the prices go up for the consumer, the consumer is hurt. But what happens with Amazon, for instance, as they scale up, the prices go down. So consumers are actually are getting a better price on a scaled-up system. So you have to redefine what is harm. And so she's trying to develop a standard where they can apply antitrust laws to these to these companies. And she's used she's hearkening back to the days, for instance, when a few rich people, say, owned the railroads and owned the steel mills. That was the, At that time, that was the infrastructure of the country. And they said, we have to have our rail infrastructure, our manufacturing infrastructure spread out. So they broke up the big steel mills. They broke up the big railroads in antitrust action. What she's saying now, technology and the Internet, is the new infrastructure and we can't let a few people control that infrastructure that's an interesting an interesting nominee and i'm interested to see what she's going to be up to coming up in the future
0: all right doc we don't have an answer yet so why don't you give the question one more time we'll take a break come back and we'll do uh, observations for the bunker
1: okay uh early in the show i talked about paul buhite he's a computer programmer and angel investor he started working on email while he was in college Why did he start that email project?
3: Okay, and the number to call is? 877-936-9333.
0: It is Saturday morning, and this is Tech Talk heard on Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, 1077 FM HD 2, Southwest of D.C. in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Stratford University is where you need to go if you want to go to Stratford University.
2: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
3: Observations from the bunker.
0: You know, I think at this point of the pandemic, you could leave the door open.
1: I'm thinking I could, you know, and I don't I definitely don't have to wear a mask anymore in the bunker. No, I can. I can pretty much go mask free now. Pretty much. Uh, Yeah, I love that door. But eventually I think we're going to have to escape the bunker. I think we're getting close to that. I think you're right. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for the governor to uh, to issue a a, a, an executive order saying that all bunkers can be uh, opened. But I haven't seen that yet.
0: No, I haven't seen it yet either.
1: I wouldn't hold my breath. I wanted to I, I sort of spent a little bit of time explaining how uh, how Paul Buchheit was able to innovate at Google, and you know how he had the flexibility to do that. And so now I, I I wanted to actually then have that lead into, and observations observations from the bunker, look at the eight pillars of innovation that are within Google and how they're organized. and uh, and these eight pillars have really, uh, held the test of time and Google continues to be extremely innovative. Number 1 is have a mission that matters. I mean work should be more than just a job. So Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. I mean that's a that is a certainly a a, a reasonable and valuable objective to have. Now the second one is think big but act small, start small. So they gave an example here. Google Books, which now has over 10 million books scanned and available online, started as just an idea that Larry Page had, one of the founders of Google. And so you know, he thought that, he said, let's just scan all the books in the world. And people said, Larry, you are crazy. So, But that was a big thought. But So what Larry did, he bought a scanner, hooked it up in his office, and he started scanning books himself and he set, up a, he set up a little timer, a little metronome, and then he could figure out how long it took to scan each page, and he gathered data on how long it would take to scan one book. And then he did a calculation, and he realized that actually, at that scan rate, you could reasonably scan, you know, 10 million books. And that was the beginning of the project. So it started very small, but it ended up being a, uh, a tremendously large project. The second thing is strive for continual continual innovation rather than instant perfection. Use an iterative process. You sort of write some code, release it, and you watch users use that code in the wild. And as they use the product, you can figure out what works and what doesn't work and what to change next. And so you iterate and iterate and iterate. Now look for ideas everywhere. So at, the, at Google, they, they had this uh, idea where uh, they'd have these whiteboards. They'd put whiteboards all around uh, the Googleplex. And, uh, and one Friday night, an engineer went to one of the whiteboards, and he wrote down this. He was having a tremendous problem with uh, a, a convoluted problem he was having with his search ad system. So he wrote down the problem on this whiteboard there in the, um, in the, uh, in the break room, and and later that night a few Googlers were sitting there, you know, drinking coffee and eating some nice food, and they saw what he had written. So they started working on it as a team, and within a few hours they'd solved the problem. And they wrote wrote the solution up on the board. So they 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 like this type of interaction where you're always looking everywhere for help. And you share everything, you know, everything is, you know, the Google, they believe in transparency. Like whenever they, um, they get a letter from the board, they share it with, with, all, 20, with all, all the employees. And whenever the presentation is to the board, after the board meeting, they share their entire board presentation with all the employees. So everybody knows everything. And if you share everything, you have a better chance of innovation. Um, spark with imagination. Imagine something. But then fuel your innovation with data. Now, in a fast-evolving market, it's hard for people to know or to imagine what they want. So Google encourages blue-sky thinking 20% of the time, Uh, but and they just do whatever they want. But as soon as they get something going, they've got to prove with data that it's effective. Uh, This 20% rule is pretty good. That means one day you do whatever you want. So like Gmail... Was a twenty percent project, for instance, that that Paul Buchheit worked on. Uh, the the next thing is, be a platform. Google believes in the power of open technologies. If you're a platform that other people can use to do their work, more gets done. So they everything they want to be a platform to enable the world to be more effective. And finally, never fail to fail. Okay. <laughs> if you I'm never fail that. it means you're not trying hard enough and uh, and so companies are known for their big successes but for every big success they have like youtube or Vidic google video player or gmail they might have 10 failures and it takes 10 failures to get two huge successes so if you never fail you're not trying hard enough so never fail to fail so there you go. Those are the eight pillars of innovation at Google.
0: Okay. We are going to go to the phones because we have somebody who'd like to play the quiz. Let's go to line one. This is Marshall who's checking in. Marshall, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Doc, good morning. go ahead and ask the question, please.
1: Yeah. Paul Buhide, he was a creator of Gmail. What prompted him to work on an email system while he was still in college? He was tired of going back to his dorm room to always check his email. He couldn't go to a library and check it. So he invented a program where he could check it from anywhere. There you go. That That's is the correct. correct answer.
0: Good going, Marshall. Thanks for listening. We're going to send that prize right out to you uh, from uh, those of us at Tech Talk. And uh, it sounds like the, the uh, dining room is going to open up pretty soon. So uh, thanks for listening today. Doc, because of the time, let's just continue on, shall we? Let's, just
1: go right through. let's, get, let's talk about the scam alert. B Be- aware of the evil twin Wi-Fi networks. I've talked about this for a couple of turns. I have not get to it, so I'm just gonna jump down and make certain we get it. Right Now, as a general rule, hotel networks are safe and you can use them without having to worry about too much of your uh, information being stolen. However, uh, there can be a problem. People can actually set up what they call an evil twin network. So somebody could check into a high-end hotel and they could set up a Wi-Fi access point, and they could call it the Hilton Free Wi-Fi. Uh-huh. Just name it. And uh, and they could even have a little login screen that looks like the Hilton login screen where you put in your, your room number and your, your name and make it look very official, and you log into it. So it's it's the evil twin of the actual hotel network. And But the thing is, since your traffic is being routed through their computer. They are capturing all your passwords, all your usernames and everything. They've got it all. Now, the only way that you would be protected uh, if you had an evil twin, uh, if you're connected to an evil twin Wi-Fi network, would be if you had a VPN, and then the VPN would ensure that all your data was encrypted and they couldn't pick it up at all. But this evil twin network, there have been people at, you're going to get free Wi-Fi at the airport? So you could sit there, open up your laptop. I could set up a Wi-Fi hotspot, and I could say, free Wi-Fi, National Airport free Wi-Fi. And all the people around me would attach to my network, and I could then sniff out their passwords. So these evil twin networks are an issue. So whenever you log on, make certain, you just double-check the spelling, make certain that you're not getting into an evil twin. And what I do whenever I'm on any public network, I activate my VPN mm-hmm. before I log into any email at all. and that's just really the best way to proceed. So let's talk about Tim berners-Lee. He's auctioning a uh, he's auctioning his NFT non-fungible uh, token. Now that of the original source code that he used to form the web. Now South of East is going to auction this off and they think they're going to raise millions of dollars. and he's going to use that money, to uh, support charities that he and his wife uh, believe in. Now, it basically, it's a digitally assigned, signed version of the code. It's sort of like getting a signed copy of a book. Now, Tim Berners-Lee said this will be an opportunity to look back 30 years at the initial code and see how simple the original web was and uh, and see where it all started from. Now, the source code behind the World Wide Web and a source browser were conceived and coded by Tim Berners-Lee between 1989 and 1991, but it was never patented, and the code was released to the public domain by CERN, the particle physics laboratory in Switzerland. So, Tim Berners-Lee never made a penny on it at all, and because it was just released to the uh, to the general public, you know, as opposed to the guys that started Google, they made a lot of money. A lot of people made money in tech, but Tim Berners-Lee actually made uh, actually made nothing out of the whole deal, so I hope he makes some money. He's going to give it to charity anyway, so I think that's pretty good. Now ransomware may be deductible, uh, so some tax advisors have said ta- that's probably is deductible. So Colonial Pipeline is going to get a tax deduction for all of their uh, ransomware that they paid. The world's largest meat packing company, JBS. <laughs> They paid eleven million dollars to hackers who took it over, and they're probably that's probably gonna be tax deductible. So people are thinking that's really not a very good uh, not a very good technique. So is, are we about done, Jim? We're I'm done, you
0: got ten time. seconds.
1: Yeah, listen, we love your emails. Email us at Tech at Stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can.
2: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.